0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. What do your music playlists and podcast feeds have in common? They're a reflection of you. And that's how the State Farm Personal Price Plan works too. It gives you options to personalize your coverage so you can protect what you care about most at an affordable price that's just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go to statefarm.com today to create your State Farm Personal Price Plan. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 9-19. No refund. Subscription auto
1: renews. A few years back, I shared a press box with a grumpy cricket writer who's also a historian on our game, and he was complaining about Bangladesh having test status. I asked him if he could name a single test nation who had not brought something to our sport. He smiled, and out of the corner of his mouth said, Zimbabwe. I understood why he chose them. In the nearly 30 years since I've got test status, it's been a weird time. In the 90s, they progressed incredibly quickly. But they've also lost some incredible talent along the way. Players moving to Australia, England, and Zimbabwe. And yet, they still managed to give us Douglas Marillia, the first man who really gave us the ramp or scoop in cricket. There was also the incredible 90s team and 99 World Cup team, who, if nothing else, cemented themselves amongst many 80s and 90s cricket fans as their second favourite. But thinking about this podcast victory over England usually signals something to the cricket world, that this team is here to stay and will only get better into the future. South Africa in 1906, the West Indies in 1929, Pakistan in 1954, and India's win in 1971 are sort of classic examples of teams announcing to the world that they are here. And with Zimbabwe in the aftermath of this victory, it looked like for a little time this would be the case. However, like any discussion about Zimbabwean cricket, this match only tells you part of the story. The story that we're telling is about an upset of incredible international cricket significance which propelled Zimbabwe to test status, cricket legitimacy and, I suppose, international recognition. It's also about the tiny Lavington sports oval in Albury, which, due to a mix of regional enthusiasm from authorities and relaxed venue standards, somehow got a World Cup match. And it's about a large chicken farmer who made the England top order look like schoolboys, And a traffic cop turned captain who, after a brief hockey career, became an incredible leader for his country. But more than all that, it's about a cricket nation defined by its own politics, administrative turmoil and hardship. They've had success and results, but it's more than that when you talk about Zimbabwe cricket. And while this story is about cricket and triumphing over adversity... For many of the teams that we've talked about here, when we talk about their journey, cricket has gone with them or sometimes even led the way as they've gone from strength to strength as a nation. In this case, that has not happened with Zimbabwe on or off the field. This is a story about triumph in Zimbabwe cricket, but unlike most of the teams in this podcast, it's hard to tell how far they've come since because of everything else that's happened to them. You can argue they've already added a lot to cricket, but you could also say they've got a lot left to do. Welcome to the Double Century Podcast. This is the final episode of Season 3. And this season has been all about beating England, that first time when you announce yourself in World Cricket. And this week is Zimbabwe's turn. An incredibly proud cricket nation, however small and however forgotten about at times. And of the greatest moments in Zimbabwe cricket, if this isn't number one, it's certainly on the pedestal. Zimbabwe's cricket has been defined, and I suppose continues to be defined, by the white minority rule of the country until 1979. The first cricket match was played there in 1890 at modern-day Masvingo, right after Cecil Rhodes' pioneer column settled there, and the first English team under Lord Hawke toured in 1898-99. And Zimbabwe's cricket fate has always been tied to South Africa, as they actually joined the domestic Currie Cup competition in 1904-05. Their initial first-class match was embarrassing, losing to Transvaal by an innings and 170 runs. From then on in, Zimbabwe didn't always have a team in the Courage Cup competition until 1946 after World War II. Of course, here I am saying Zimbabwe, but by that I do mean at this point the country was known as Rhodesia. However, for the period that we're talking about, the state was not officially recognised by the international community and its cricket was actually restricted to domestic and provincial level partly because of that. The white-ruling elite were not willing to give up their power, and hence Zimbabwean cricket suffered against the backdrop of racial oppression, international isolation, and civil war. Cricket was restricted to, and only largely accessible to whites, limiting the spread of the game in the country. With the fall of the white minority regime, Zimbabwe were able to play more international cricket, becoming an associate member of the ICC in 1981, and qualifying for and playing in the 1983 and 1987 World Cups. It's worth noting that there was actually international cricket of a kind in Rhodesia at certain periods throughout history. One significant tour was in 1962-63. Mostly, obviously, white Englishmen toured, but there was also Wes Hall, Rowan Canai, Chandu Border, and most importantly, Basil D'Oliveira. This team couldn't have toured South Africa at that time, but they could tour Rhodesia. But the first thing they did in international cricket in any major way, of course, was play under their own name at Trent Bridge in 1983 in the World Cup, where they defeated Australia a famous 13-run victory, Duncan Fletcher on debut as captain, inspired the upset, top scoring with 69 out out and having the best figures of 4 for 42. It prompted a boom within the local game. Cricketers went into townships to teach the sport well beyond the wealthy white base. Sponsors constructed concrete pitches for schools and cricket scholarships were created to send young players to the privileged schools that had created the cricketers in the first place. That wasn't the only amazing game that Zimbabwe played in the 1983 World Cup. At Tunbridge Wells, they famously reduced India from 9 for 4, 17 for 5, 78 for 7 and 140 for 8 before someone called Kapil Dev, who you may have heard of, played one of the greatest ODI innings of all time. Zimbabwe could have won that match otherwise. Unfortunately, there's no footage of the game, but a young Andy Zoltzman was there in the crowd and if you ever bump into him, he will take you through every one of Kapil Dev's runs. At the 1987 World Cup in Hyderabad, Dave Houghton played one of the greatest innings of the tournament. It was a bit like Kapil Devs, a lone hand, and no bowler could dominate him that day. But sadly, he couldn't do it alone, and Martin Crow took an absolute stunner to get rid of him, and Zimbabwe lost to New Zealand by three runs. It was clear from these three World Cup games that they played that they actually weren't that far away already. And so by the time they got to the 1992 World Cup, they were on their way, but they were still very much an amateur team. The only way Zimbabwe's cricket board could actually make money at that stage was qualifying for World Cups, which in itself was an expense only achieved through, obviously, significant fundraising. The squad had cricket talent, and many would go on to have great careers in the game, but at that stage, they also had other jobs to sustain them in a way that quite a few other cricket nations had already moved well beyond. In 1983, just to get to the tournament, they organised raffles, sold cakes, and even sold belongings to fund themselves for that tournament. Some of them worked as bouncers in casinos beforehand. In the 1980s, the only full-time employee of the cricket ball was Dave Houghton, their star batter who would go on to become their captain after Fletcher and John Trekos. Houghton came from a poor family in Bulawayo, and he chose policing over sport as a way to feed his family. However, due to police governance policy changes following the majority black ascent to power, that actually changed his promotional chances within the police force. And as a natural athlete, he had many choices within sport. His friend and schoolmate, Nick Price, chose golf. For those who don't know, Nick Price is the uncle of Zimbabwean spin-up Ray Price. Years later, Houghton would joke about he knew he chose the right sport when years later, when he was out on the field for a hot day, not getting paid much money, he would look overhead at Nick Price's personal jet flying above. But before he chose cricket, Dave Houghton actually chose hockey. He became Zimbabwe's goalkeeper for a number of years, and the 1984 Pakistan hockey captain even said that he was the best goalkeeper he had faced. But he continued to play cricket and he became a very good batter and a handy standing in wicketkeeper for the nation's team. He was thought to be a very smart player. The 1992 team also had some other interesting players who would go on to be important for Zimbabwe cricket. Ali Shah was the first player outside the white community to represent the country. Andy Waller was a future Zimbabwean coach who excelled as a batter and was a brilliant fielder. And there was also a wicketkeeping opening batter who made his debut earlier in the tournament named Andy Flower. The match against England was the final pool match of the 1992 World Cup. That one was hosted by Australia and New Zealand. The tournament is most famous for being the first true modern one-day international event. All the teams had coloured clothing, there were white balls, black side screens. It was a different thing. Those shirts are still incredibly popular with older cricket fans, so much so that you may remember England used a replica version in the 2019 World Cup. It was also the first World Cup at that point where every team played each other in the group stage. And like many final round group matches in major competitions, this meant that by the time they got to the last match, it didn't mean as much. England had won five of their first seven games and they'd coasted to the semifinals. They were among the favourites to win the tournament, led by Ian Botham, Graeme Gooch and Alex Stewart. While Zimbabwe had lost their first seven matches and they were bottom of the table. In fact, they had lost their last 18 ODIs. This wasn't for a lack of effort. At Bukakura Park in New Zealand, which is one of the most beautiful cricket grounds you will ever see, There was a century from Andy Flower against Sri Lanka, which for a long time looked like was going to get them over the line. Sri Lanka's chase of 313 was at that point a world record. Zimbabwe also fell around 50 runs short to eventual champions Pakistan, and they should have beaten India in Hamilton. The match was reduced to 32 overs, India got 203 for 7, Zimbabwe were cruising at 100 for 1 in 19.1 overs. They needed 104 runs in 77 balls with 9 wickets in hand. And then it rained, and the bizarre rain rule of that tournament meant that the pass score was 159. So coming into this last game, they were desperate for a win, and I think it's probably fair to say England were not as desperate. And the game was also played in a very random place, in not one of Australia's major cities, but the rural town of Albury. The Oval there has been a host to many prestigious sporting events like the Ovens and Murray Australian Football League, the 1994 New South Wales Rugby League pre-season competition, and it is the home ground of the Lavington Panthers. The Border Mail, which is a local newspaper, recently stated excitedly that the Oval would be hosting a major event of the under-15 Australian Football Championships in 2022. It gives you an idea of what sort of a stadium this is. Well, stadium is the wrong word. The reason the match was played in Albury was a drive by then the Australian Cricket Board, which is now Cricket Australia, to play more matches in other parts of Australia that didn't usually get games. It resulted in fixtures being played in places like Ballarat, Mackay, Albury and even Berry, a town of 4,000 people in the South Australian Riverland, famous for cast wine. The regional focus of the tournament created many interesting moments, like a helicopter attempting to dry a pitch in Mackay before it was a washout. And at two balls, this remains the shortest ODI amongst those that were ever started. The post office and manager turned groundkeeper in Berry woke up to rain on the morning of his match, only realized his wife had played a prank and was watering the roof. And many like to call the group stage of that World Cup the Bush World Cup, which is something that is ignored now when people look back to that World Cup as the king of World Cups. The Aubrey pitch was clearly not up to international standard. The ball actually swung quite a bit up there, which obviously has nothing to do with the pitch, but there was also variable bounce, and a lot of balls were keeping low.
0: England's last match in the round-robin section is against Zimbabwe, who've yet to win a game in this year's World Cup and are playing simply for pride. Graham Gooch, the England captain, returns after treatment on his injured hamstring, and England go into the match without their three bowling all-rounders, Pringle, Lewis and Reeve. For Zimbabwe, a lot will depend on the performances of the left-handed opener, Andy Flower, and also their captain, David Houghton. On a perfect day for cricket, England won the toss and asked Zimbabwe to bat.
1: Zimbabwe was sent in to bat, and they were rolled for 134 in 45 overs.
0: Andy Flower faced Phil De Freitas. Bowled off his gloves, and Zimbabwe are 12 for one. They moved on to 30 for two, having lost Andy Pycroft out to Ian Botham, The end came in the 47th over. Richard Dillingworth strikes again. Malcolm Jarvis, LBW for six. Zimbabwe, 134 all out.
1: It was a painful performance with Dave Houghton, the captain at that point, scratching to a top score of 29. The next best score was Ian Butchart’s 24.
0: It was a good all-round fielding performance from England. They bowled tightly and shared the wickets. Botham 3 for 23, Illingworth 3 for 33, and Tufnell 2 for 36.
1: Even on this pitch, England looked pretty comfortable and on course for victory. So much so that Geoffrey Boycott came up to Houghton at the lunch break and derided Zimbabwe's amateur side for not running ones and twos to rotate the strike. Boycott told Houghton to watch the professionals come out after lunch break and win the game easily. Houghton was upset and he pleaded with his team in the innings break to provide some entertainment to the 5,000 fans at the ground by making the game go as long as possible. It's also worth pointing out that at this point, Zimbabwe cricket was at the crossroads. There was no huge movement for them to become the next test-playing nation. They had beaten Australia and they'd been handy in other games, but they just really hadn't gone anywhere. They were kind of caught between two worlds. They were way too good for associate cricket, which was just finding its feet at that stage, but they didn't seem good enough for the next tier. It was also quite clear that they were going to be losing a lot of quality players if they didn't step up. They'd already lost Graham Hick, who wouldn't go on to be the great talent for England that everyone thought he would. But for a team like Zimbabwe, you can't afford to lose a player of his ability. Graham Hick was really one of the most professional cricketers that Zimbabwe had ever produced. He was slick and made runs almost like a robot and scored them everywhere. At one stage, he was the hottest batter in the world not playing international cricket. But Graham Hick obviously didn't go on to have a career for Zimbabwe. So they were left with people like Edo Brandes, who was a huge barrel-chested fast bowler, fast being maybe a slight exaggeration. He was famous for sledging and also his lack of fitness. Oh, and he was also famous for this day in Aubrey.
0: England made their worst possible start in their reply, with Graham Gooch on his return to the side, playing across this full ball from Edo Brandes and out for a golden duck. England's naught for one.
1: Brandis caught Gooch LBW first ball with a vicious low in swinging York. And that itself was a handy start. But he also in the same spell dismissed Alan Lamb, who at that stage was probably one of England's greatest one-day players. Not long after that, he got out Robin Smith, a beautiful batter, who maybe we didn't quite see the most of in international cricket, but so elegant and beautiful to watch. It's worth also noting where those two men are from. Alan Lamb and Robin Smith are South Africans. They couldn't play for South Africa, and so they went to England to ply their trade. But it was the next wicket that was more interesting, because it was the man I just mentioned. It was Graham Hick who came out to bat. A young Graham Hick, who at that stage was really still the great hope for English cricket. And while that never really happened in Test cricket, ODI cricket, Graham Hick would go on to be an incredible player and would have been an all-time great for Zimbabwe. In first-class cricket, of course, Graham Hick made 136 hundreds while averaging over 50. Imagine what that could have done for Zimbabwe. Before playing for England, Hick was so in demand that he actually played in the Sheffield Shield as an overseas player. There aren't that many players who've ever played Sheffield Shield cricket as an overseas player. Hick was an incredible talent and a Zimbabwean talent who would not play for them. And here he was against maybe the least professional player, Edo Brandis. Someone who probably could have played for Zimbabwe far more, but didn't because he was just never fit. It wasn't his job. He was a chicken farmer, not a cricketer. Cricket was his hobby. Cricket was Graham Hick's profession and life. It's also important to note that Hick and Brandis were best friends. Brandis had even teased him the night before that Hick was going to be his bunny.
2: Well, now Here we come to the age-old question. What are we going to do with Graham Hick? This was him out for naught. England 5 for 43 now, and Brandis is a complete hero. He's knocked over 4. Don't take any credit away from Edo Brandis. This is a super ball to a class batsman. Get it in at his feet. He's very tall, Graham Hick. Off stump back. It's bullseye balling. Look at the high stepper there. He's in there. Down the wicket. Yes, on your way. He's got his old mate as well, because, of course, uh, Graham Hick used to be a Zimbabwean.
1: But it didn't just stop with Hick. England continued to struggle. Alex Stewart hit 29 of 96 balls, and Neil Fairbrother, who was battling a stomach infection, batted for over two hours without a boundary. Eventually, with Fairbrother out to a smart catch from Flower, the score was 108 for 8. Victory looked possible for Zimbabwe when Richard Illingworth was run out with the score on 194, meaning nine wickets down.
2: 108 for 8, that was, and this was the end of uh, Richard Illingworth. A direct hit, great piece of fielding. And Illingworth has run out. That's just what you need when you're in a tight situation. When things don't go well for you, they don't go well for you. You don't need that. Only a couple of wickets left, and you're trying to eke every run out of the situation. But it's a direct hit. It needed it. It's a brave throw. Can't tell if anybody was backing up there. That's a feature of the World Cup. Super fielding.
1: In the 50th over, Malcolm Jarvis forced a false shot from Gladstone Small to mid-wicket, and Zimbabwe had beaten England.
2: And this was Gladstone Small... And Zimbabwe have had their Waterloo and Christmases rolled into one because Gladstone has gone, caught Pycroft bowled Jarvis for five and England chasing 1-3-5 to win, a bowled out for 125. Yeah, licking and flicking Gladstone there. He's just flicked his take to midwicket. Moment Moments of glory, a big moment of glory for Zimbabwe.
1: The 5,000-strong Aubrey crowd mobbed the visitors, shouting them drinks at the local pub for the rest of the night for just having beaten England. Houghton later claimed that the victory was a result of the pitch, which was basically impossible to score on. But both teams had played on that surface, and Zimbabwe had come out on top. Perhaps they were more used to pitches like that than England were. But does that matter? They won. But it wasn't just about Flower, Houghton, and Brandes. There were other heroes of this game, like John Trakos, who was born in Egypt of Greek descent, had a remarkable cricket career where he played for both South Africa and Zimbabwe, He also lives now in Australia. He's a true international man of cricket, I suppose. He played for South African cricket in 1970. And after South Africa was suspended from international cricket, he played for Rhodesia in the Curry Cup until Zimbabwe were given associate member status in 1981. In the famous victory over Australia, he took none for 24, completely stifling the resistance from the Australian middle order. In this match, he bowled a suffocating 10 overs for 16 runs, allowing the rest of the Zimbabwean bowlers to attack. Just think about what I just told you. Try and work out the dates here. He made his debut for South Africa in 1970. He helped Zimbabwe beat England in 1992. And he would continue to play. In fact, he would take five wickets in Zimbabwe's debut test. So what happened because of this victory? Well, Zimbabwe were granted test status later that year. And they played their first test match against India in Harare in October. They remained with Australia as the only team not to lose their debut match. But their early performances were consistently weak, winning only one of their first 30 test matches. However, as the 90s went on, led by players like the Flower Brothers, Andy and Grant, he streaked their all-rounder captain who tried very hard. Getting into the late 90s, they started to have a bit of a golden era, at least by their standards. They came fifth at the 1999 World Cup, drew a test series against England, and beat every other established cricket nation except for Australia, although they'd already beaten them once. However, their success was still marred by racial controversy. Robert Mugabe, the Prime Minister, President, and I suppose dictator of Zimbabwe, was an avid cricket fan. In fact, he once said this, Cricket civilises people and creates good gentlemen. I want everyone to play cricket in Zimbabwe. I want ours to be a nation of gentlemen. This was a problem for Zimbabwe cricket because out of the 57 players that represented Zimbabwe in ODIs from 1983 to 1999, only nine were non white This was a cricket team that galvanised the country and were lauded as heroes from townships to cities, but they didn't represent the nation they played for. But under Mugabe's reign, there were more problems than just the cricket team. The country really started to fracture. And in the 2003 World Cup, Henry O'Longa and Andy Flower decided to make a stand on the field. We now know it is the black armband protest. The two players, although Grant Flower was also originally part of this, We're going to wear the black armbands to mourn the death of democracy in Zimbabwe. As a result of the protest, both men had to leave Zimbabwe. This is part of the statement they released. In all the circumstances, we have decided that we'll each wear a black armband for the duration of the World Cup. In doing so, we are mourning the death of democracy in our beloved Zimbabwe. In doing so, we are making a silent plea to those responsible to stop the abuse of human rights in Zimbabwe. In doing so, we pray that our small action may help to restore sanity and dignity to our nation. In that match, Flower scored 39 and longer took none for eight from three overs. Zimbabwe won the rain affected match, but neither of the men ever played for Zimbabwe again. The following year, the cricket union sat the captain He Streak and dismissed 15 cricketers who protested the quota system being implemented. Over the next 15 years, they did win some games, but there were so many problems they were eventually suspended. After losing to India in 2005 2-0 in a series, Zimbabwe didn't play another test for six years. And then only a few years ago, they were banned by the ICC because of political interference in their cricket board. They have lost some of their greatest players, had incredibly bad defeats. And since that armband protest, almost everything has gone wrong with Zimbabwe cricket. But since 2019, things have been slowly starting to pick back up for them. It's allowed for them to have blessing Muzarabani. A tall, incredible opening bowler who was flirting with a coal pack career and also moving to the US, he's now come back home to bowl for his country. But even this year, one of their players, Ryan Burr, had to turn to Twitter to get a new pair of boots just because he and his teammates couldn't play at the level they wanted with what Zimbabwe cricket was providing. So when I think of cricket in Zimbabwe, I keep going back to that question from the grumpy old cricket writer. What has Zimbabwe given cricket? Duncan Fletcher's clever upset. Dave Houghton's sense of humour. Colin de Grandholm's mullet, Douglas Morelia's scoop, the 90s Zimbabwean team, blessing Muzer emergence. There's plenty of little things like that. But I also think about Alonga and Flower, who used our sport to make a political stance to try and help their country. There's been many great things over the last 40 years of Zimbabwe's often frustrating journey. But as much as I think about Alonga and Flower and Duncan Fletcher and some of the other great stories and the great shirts they wore in the 90s, When I think about Zimbabwe cricket, I think about the unathletic chicken farmer who upset England in a country town. The optimism of that day and the test status that followed probably betrayed Zimbabwe's reality. The nation is fractured just like their cricket has been, and they often fight just to get on the field. And maybe that win in the 92 World Cup doesn't mean much as they yet again have to restart their international cricket journey. But Edo Brandes was a chicken farmer who destroyed the mighty English team. Maybe it didn't lead to a great future for Zimbabwe cricket, but they still gave cricket that one incredible moment. And I think they've given a lot more. If anything, this podcast has told me about all these different cricket teams is that they go through ups and downs and they have incredible journeys. And sometimes cricket moves a nation forwards, and Sometimes a nation holds their cricket team back. It doesn't feel like we're in a golden era of Zimbabwe cricket right now. But I hope the struggles of Dave Houghton, Andy Flower and Blessing Musarabani and Ali Shah and Henry Olonga and so many of the other players that we haven't named today. Incredible stories of players who fought on and on against hardships as amateurs to try and make their nation a better cricket team. And they still do. And the more I think about what Zimbabwe have given cricket and their golden era and everything that's come since, I can't help thinking about what an amazing story it is for cricket. The ninth test-playing nation was a country that didn't even have international standing, that played cricket domestically in another test nation. And why did we give them test playing status? Because a bloody chicken farmer destroyed the English cricket team, the nation who invented the sport, spread it to all of us. I don't know. Feels like Zimbabwe cricket have given us quite a few things. But even if it's just that one moment, I still reckon I'll take it. That's the end of season three. There will be a season four. There will probably be many more seasons, but I'd just like to thank everyone who worked on this series. Nick McCorriston is our producer and has done a wonderful job with this series as he does with kind of everything he works on. Abhishek Mukherjee is the cricket historian that I go to for the fact checking of these episodes. I would say he's the best living cricket historian and someone who I am proud to work alongside. Max Wiggins was the researcher on this series and did a great job with research until I broke my arm and he had to step up and help with co-writing the last couple of episodes. So he co-wrote the West Indies episode and the Zimbabwe episode. Considering it's one of his first real efforts at major publications, I thought he did brilliantly in both of those episodes. I am Jared Kimber. You can follow me anywhere I just put my name into Google and do this. I do this podcast because I really love the stories of cricket and I think that they should continue to be told. This podcast is made possible by the people at Patreon. We wouldn't have been able to afford to get everyone involved if it wasn't for that. We're trying to make it as professional as possible, but we do need your help. So if you've liked Double Century Seasons 1, 2, and 3, or just Season 3, wherever you've started, please go over to Patreon and support us. The more Patreon supporters we get, the quicker that we'll be able to go into Season 4, and the quicker we'll be able to go into Season 5. And if you do like this podcast, please share it with everyone that you can on all your social medias. We understand that this is not the sort of podcast that everyone talks about, but we also know that the people who listen to it and like it are huge fans of it, and we'd like to find more of those people out there. For this particular series, I'd also like to thank the players from Ireland, Netherlands, and Scotland for coming on the podcast. See you for Season 4. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Du Plessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.